Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jim O'Brien, the author of Golden Arms. Jim O'Brien, author of Golden Arms, six Hall of Fame quarterbacks from Western Pennsylvania. How many books have you written about Pittsburgh sports? I've written uh, altogether 24 books and 21 on Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania sports. I also wrote one about my family called What Love and Pride. And uh, two young men who just became fathers recently have all of my books. And they told me they like with love and pride the best. And that's the hardest one for me to sell because people want to think that it's about the Rooney family. And when they find out it's about my family, they're less interested. How do you keep coming up with new angles to write about? Well, I have about 34 drawers worth of material at home. Photos, clippings, uh, interviews on legal pads. And every time my wife, Kathy, and she does this frequently, suggests that I clear up something or throw out some stuff. When I go back through my files, I, I find another book or two that I haven't done yet because I have all these stories to tell. You know, I have the stories, I have the material, I have the photos, and I have the, uh, the enthusiasm to do it. I'm 73 now as we speak, and I was talking about, uh, to a photographer the other day, I think when you're younger, as a writer, you might be more creative. You might be more of a risk taker. But I'd like to think that when you become 73 that you are wiser than you were when you were 23, 29, whatever. And I'd like to think that I bring a perspective to the things that I write about, that I have a better understanding of the, the big picture. And so. I, I have about four or five other books plotted. I have at least two in my computer. God forbid that it should uh, crash because I don't do backup. I'm not that smart. But it, the other thing about it is I don't use tape recorders. And one of my strengths as a writer is getting people to talk. It's one of your strengths. And I play on that to get people to tell me everything, it seems, about their lives or about their experiences and so forth. And because I don't use a tape recorder, if I lose the notes, and I've done that, I know the stories. And I have another attitude about that that some writers wouldn't agree with, but let's face it, these people are not giving me the Gettysburg address. So if I miss a word from what they said, uh, so what? I have the spirit of it. And if they say something stupid, but in the four-hour interview they haven't said anything else stupid, I'm not going to make them pay the price for, for that one slip-up. Because 
they are allowing me into their home. They are allowing me to uh, spend time with them. They're generous with their thoughts and insights, and uh, I think I respect that. And I think it's important. And the other thing that happens as a writer, it's very important, is they trust you. Now, I had an interesting challenge with this new book, Golden Arms. I've, in my lifetime, I've interviewed all six of the quarterbacks. I was at Canton for the induction ceremonies of all six. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in these people, and especially since they're from Western Pennsylvania. And I went. There were years where I went every year to uh, Canton, Ohio, for those things. But they don't remember me specifically. We're not chums. We're not old friends. So I remember a great writer named Jimmy Cannon said, any sports writer who thinks the ballplayers really like them is a fool. So when I'm, I had about an hour on the phone, update, interview for this book. And the challenge was that I have about five minutes to say something that's going to make them trust me and be comfortable with me. When Joe Namath called, for instance, and I had interviewed him for the New York Post. I used to interview him every, every week. Uh, I wasn't the Jets writer, but when the Jets writer was off, I went out and did a Joe Namath interview because he wasn't that fond of our beat writers. So I would, and he, he liked me because I was from Western Pennsylvania and we knew some of the same characters. Other people might consider those characters nefarious to say the least, but with Joe that meant that I was okay. But when Joe called at the appointed time, he was very punctual. I said, Joe, let's not do an interview. How about if we just have a conversation? He said, that's fine with me. And we just talked. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, Joe, wrap it up here. I said, uh, when all is said and done, what are you thinking about now? What's, what's, what's on your mind? There was a pause. And he said, I worry about being lonesome. Now, can you imagine, when I was in New York, he was, the, he was more than a sports celebrity. He was a celebrity. He dated movie stars. He wore the, uh, he had the, the fur coats, the llama rugs, Broadway Joe, cover of Sports Illustrated, cover of women's magazines and so forth. I mean, he was a hot number. Pantyhose commercial. Pantyhose commercial. And now he's lonesome. He lives with five, that's the latest count. His daughters keep dropping off dogs at the house. He has five, five dogs at his home, which keeps him on schedule. He has to let them out in the yard. He says it's a big yard, three times a day. So, uh, but Joe, was, he's fascinating to talk to. And when Jim Cowie called, I just started talking a little bit. He said, oh, my God, you're so Pittsburgh. Oh, you sound like my buddies from East Brady. And I knew that would go well. So we had a good time. Is your interviewing style different now, your approach to interviewing, than it was when you were a young, up-and-coming sports writer? Probably because I'm sure I feel more confident. I do my homework. I always do my homework. I credit you for doing that as well. You do come prepared, and I think it's important whether you're a writer or a ball player. I have dreams all the time, nightmares really, in which I've gone to a, a sports event, usually football games, and I haven't been paying much attention. 
and I don't have any stats, and I don't have the play-by-play, and now I can't find the locker room. Which, when you're 73, there are times when you can't find the locker room or things like that. But I have this sense of panic because I can't do my job. I can't get the stories. And it's never happened. Never happened. Anything even close to it. But I dream about it. And the other thing that I think is, is different that I do now is I go back over my stories with the person that I've interviewed. And I find that, I remember, for instance, with Mike Wagner of the Steelers, I said something about him being bigger than today's defensive backs. And he said, make that taller. Make that taller. And sometimes when you're doing an interview, you might miss something or you might misinterpret something. So I go over it with him after I've written a story. I, go, I call him on the phone and I just go over things with him to get it right. And uh, I did do two books early on called Doing It Right and Whatever It Takes, and, and now I'm living up to that. Uh, and I think that's important. I didn't do that when I was a young writer because you don't care what they think when you're a young writer. You're not trying to please them. And I'm not, I don't genuflect when I see these guys, but I do respect what they've accomplished, and I do want to give them a fair shake when I write about them. Why do you think sports is such a big deal in America? It's too big of a deal. It's too big of a deal. I mean, I make my living writing stories about sports. But I often tell people when I run into them the day after a Steelers defeat or a Pitt defeat, and they're whining and they're crying and they're it's going to ruin their day, ruin their weekend, ruin their lives. I mean, it's that serious with some of these people. And they're critical of the coach. They're critical of the players. And my retort is, what are you going to do this week to win? You're a teacher. Do you want to be a better teacher? Do you read any books about teaching techniques or about your subject of history? Before we came on the air, you and I were talking about the French and Indian War, which is a big deal in western Pennsylvania. Uh, I know where Braddock's defeat took place, and it's right across the the Monongahela River from Kennywood Park, one of my favorite amusement parks, right up there with Hershey Park. I do my homework. I have been on some national television interviews where I've told my wife I was the least famous, the least involved, for instance, with golf. I never covered golf on a full-time basis, but if you see the documentary that's been done about Jack Nicklaus's uh, first victory in the Open over Arnold Palmer, I'm in that more than anybody else. I did my homework. I went and read articles about the golf. I was there. I was a student at the University of Pittsburgh, and I was working at the Pittsburgh Press, and I volunteered to go out and help the cameramen to write photo captions. I was on the edge of the green at that U.S. Open for five days. It was a five-day tournament because it was, uh, went into uh, sudden death with Palmer and Nicholas. So I, I think you should be prepared. And I think when I interview people and they, Danny Marino told the public relations director of the Dolphins, a fellow named Harvey Green that I've known for since my days in New York, and he said he thought he was talking to an old friend. And he was surprised by how much I knew about his early years and his family and, then the, and their dog and their 
you know, everyone's name in the neighborhood and so forth. And uh, I just met a woman today at one of my signings uh, that uh, lives on the same street as Danny Marino. And her dad was a police officer in Pittsburgh. And he was in some news as well. And I, I get excited when I talk to those people because there's so many stories still out there, Brian. There's so many stories that I, I want to catch. What's your favorite sport to write about? Boxing. Boxing? Boxing. Really? Why is that? I'm going to do a book. My wife shudders at the thought. <laughs> oh, God. A book on boxing. I won't print as many as a book on Roberto Clemente or Franco Harris, but I have to write the book. Pittsburgh has a wonderful boxing history. Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Scranton, they were all great boxing towns. And... Uh, I was interested in. I've always been interested. People say, what's your favorite sport? I'm interested in stories. I'm not real good about the details of this particular game and that particular game. I was after stories. I was always interested in writing a feature about them. You know, who are these people? Where do they come from? How did they get here? How did they succeed? What were some of the obstacles they faced? That interests me. Boxing is it's right all there for you. It's, and I've always covered all sports, did that on purpose. Um, in Miami, when I went to Miami, I, they had boxing shows every two weeks on Miami Beach. I got to know Angelo Dundee very well, who was the trainer for Muhammad Ali and other champions, Louis Rodriguez, Willie Pastrano. And I think I always went places that other writers didn't go. Sometimes it was risky. I mean, I went to an old bar in New Orleans called the Bastille to interview Willie Pastrano, and uh, he was a light heavyweight champion, and he was quite a character, and he, he was managed by uh, Dundee. The, the most celebrated athlete I ever covered was Muhammad Ali. I was at ringside, right in the center of uh, one of the four sides of the ring for that, and it really was the fight of the century. I just wish that I had, I have it in my pocket right now. I wish I had a camera with me that I carry with me everywhere. That's a change from the, the old days. I have a camera with me. Even if I'm not covering an event because I don't know who's going to walk by, who's going to show up. And um, boxers wanted you, to, you know, their people ask you to come and you could go into the locker room. I remember one time I was in Miami Beach and I covered a, a fighter named Cleveland Big Cat Williams, he was from Houston, and he'd been shot several times in the stomach, and he still bore the wounds in his stomach. And he, was, he fought the, the top heavyweights of his time. He was a rated fighter, and he's now on the decline, and I'm in the locker room with him 10 minutes before the fight in Miami. And he was building a ship inside of a bottle. Now, that's a delicate procedure. And you've got this giant of a man, big cat. They don't call you a big cat when you're a lightweight fighter. He was a big guy, but he was so gentle. And what he was doing was so gentle. I was always fascinated by how, how do you do that? How do you build those ships inside those bottles? But 10 minutes before the fight, I'm, I have that kind of access. And that was the beauty of boxing. But now boxing isn't as relevant as it you know, as it was. And, and there was a wonderful book a couple of years ago, The Boys in the Boat. And it was written about uh, the competition between the rowing teams of the University of Washington 
in California and the Ivy League schools in the East. And I thought, I've never been that interested in rowing. What a wonderful book it was about competition and determination and coaching. And uh, it also had flashbacks to what was going on in Nazi Germany at the time. So there was a, there was a background that was uh, fascinating as well. But I also learned that in those days, back in the 20s and 30s, in 30s and then later on, that the New York Times covered rowing. It was the rowing and horse racing and boxing were the three, you know, three of the biggest sports along with baseball. So you do these things on books and all I can tell you is that I tell my grandchildren this, every time you read a book, you're a little smarter than you were yesterday. And I think that's, a, that's something to strive for. Well, how often do you come away from interviews? For all the people you've interviewed, how often do you come away from an interview thinking, well, I learned something new? Well, I do. And, and sometimes I write books about people, and they are printed. And then someone says to me, uh, what are you doing? What are you working on? And I said, well, I just did a book on uh, Art Rooney. And they go, oh, I got a great story on Art Rooney. And you, they tell you, and it's, I actually, there's a, it's in another book. It's in a book called Pittsburgh Pride. The best story I ever heard about Art Rooney is in Pittsburgh Pride. It's not in The Chief. So I just always give me the give me this story. I'll find some place where I can, where it works, where it fits in. But, yeah, a lot of times, and then also I recognize now, this is something you, uh, when you touched on how is it different, when I went to New York in 1970, I was comfortable with basketball, but I, I started covering baseball a couple years later on a full-time basis. And I had not been a big baseball fan. And I was, I was working covering against some of the best baseball writers in America. They were in New York, and they were also the best, the best sports writers. When was this? Uh, in the 60s. The best sports writers were in Philadelphia. You had Stan Hockman, you had Larry Merchant, he later came to New York. You had Sandy Grady, these writers were working for the Enquirer, for the uh, Philadelphia Daily News, and for the Philadelphia Bulletin. And I went and worked at the Bulletin at 30th and Market Streets when I was a, a, a junior in college at the University of Pittsburgh. I wanted to be in Philadelphia because the great sports writers were in Philadelphia. I wanted to learn from them. And uh, the thing is, is that I've always respected the old sports writers. I always wanted to talk to them. When I would go to the Super Bowl, I would sit and talk to them because I, I wanted to hear their stories. Spending time with other Pittsburgh sports writers, to me, was incestuous behavior. All you were going to do is the same old, same old, mo moaning about your boss or something like that. You know, you can't learn anything there. But boxing had, had and, and everybody who boxed, except for Ali, all had real jobs. So they had to work for a living. I mean, Joe Frazier worked in a meatpacking company in Philadelphia. Uh, when I was in Philadelphia, I remember seeing Harold Johnson fight when I was in Philadelphia. Harold Johnson had been a terrific light heavyweight fighter. Joey Giardello came out of Philadelphia. And Willie Pep is from Pennsylvania. And in my experience, I saw Sugar Ray Robinson in his last fight as a pro. It was in Pittsburgh. I saw Floyd Patterson fight in Pittsburgh. I saw Sonny Liston fight in Pittsburgh. Great line on Liston. He fought a guy named Roger Risher. He dug a fist into his kidneys, and, and he went down in the third round. Risher had been a longshoreman in San Francisco. 
Before the fight, Risher said to me, I fear no man who walks this earth. Because Liston was a formidable foe known as the baleful, baleful Sonny Liston. So I said to Liston, and he wasn't known for being clever or, or good with words, and I said, Roger Risher said that he feared no man who walks this earth. And he said, when he got up in that ring, he wasn't on this earth no more. I thought, man, this is good for Sonny Liston. But I have all those stories, so somewhere I've got to put them in a you book. You haven't done a boxing book yet? No, and it's going to be called From A to Z, Pittsburgh Boxing from Ali to Zivik. Ali celebrated his, ninth, his 21st birthday here in Pittsburgh, and he fought a boxer from, who had played for the uh, Oakland Raiders named Charlie Powell and beat him at, at the uh, Civic Arena. So there's stories to be written, and boxers, they're the fabric. Well, one time in Pittsburgh back in the 40s, there were eight divisions in boxing, and only, only one respected really legitimate ranking. And over a 16-month period, it wasn't all at the same time, over a 16-month period, six of the eight world champions were from Western Pennsylvania, which is almost as good as six quarterbacks from Western <laughs> Pennsylvania be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, we haven't actually talked about the subject of your book. Oh, but, who cares? But before we get to that, I have to, in uh, the tail end of your book, you mentioned that you are a voter in the Baseball Hall of Fame. No ballot. more. I Why have not? been. They just, they just uh, realigned the boxing. I'm sure the, uh, the young guys had something to do with this. But now, I haven't covered baseball on a full-time basis for a number of years. So when they told me this, I just wrote to them and said it was an honor all these years to be voting for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I said, I bet that I know my baseball players as well as any of the young writers because I'm into history. You know, I read books. I wasn't covering baseball when Babe Ruth was playing. I wasn't, uh, believe it or not, I know you think I, I did not cover the French and Indian War, <laughs> but through books, I just saw a cartoon at a library yesterday where it said that uh, you can go anywhere in the world, you can learn about so many things, and you only need a library card. Well, just one more question about the Baseball Hall of Fame. When you would vote, yes. what, what was your thinking on it? Because some people believe that like nobody should get in on the first year of eligibility. Some people vote for very few people, other vote, people vote for a lot of people. Well, one of the things is I voted for people I didn't particularly like. And I think a lot of people don't do that. You know, Barry Bonds, for instance, gave us all reasons to, to not be able to stand him. And it's a shame because he, once upon a time before his head ballooned into a dirigible, he was a handsome man, well-spoken, had a great smile. And he did something that I write about in my books. He chose to be a jerk. And I don't understand that psyche. If you have a choice between being a good guy and being a jerk, why would you choose to be a jerk? But he did because his father was a jerk and his, his uh, godfather, Willie Mays, was a jerk. He was? Oh, yes. But one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And see, when you're voting, that's the thing you have to keep separate. You know, Barry Bonds was a pain in the butt and uh, Bobby Willie Bonds, Bobby Bonds. Willie Mays was a whiner. But Willie Mays was the greatest center fielder ever. And the thing is, when you're voting, I don't, you know, there's no, nothing in the rules that say 
you can't vote for him the first time around. Hey, tell me that uh, Sandy Koufax or Ted Williams weren't worthy, Bob Gibson, you know, the first time out. The, so I didn't have any rules like that. And I always voted for 10. You, 10 was the maximum you could vote for. And I always voted for them. There's, uh, and, I, and I took it seriously. And, I, and, I, and again, I thought it was an honor. I was on the nominating committee for three years for the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. And actually, it was an honor to be on a teleconference call with John Wooden and uh, Hank Iba and Eddie Donovan and, uh, and Adolph Rupp. I mean, I was kidding a candy store talking to those guys. But I knew my stuff. I knew who was who and who did what and everything else like that. So when you sat down to do this book, Six Hall of Fame Quarterbacks, how do you, how do you assemble it all and how do you put it all in a book? Well, that's a good question. And one of the things, I have a writer's group at my church, and I have, feel such satisfaction out of what they have turned out. And my instruction to them, you can't teach people how to write, but I have freed, I have freed them to write. And what I did in this book, and I've done in all my books, I don't write a book. It's too overwhelming. I mean, that book is 640 pages. It's great doorstop. The thing is, I just start writing stories. And I identify my stories. I have a yellow legal pad, and I'll write down some of the special things that, that I know about these individuals or my own experiences. And I take my cue from the great Roger Kahn and Boys of Summer to I interject myself into these stories when it's appropriate. Well, how did I feel when I saw this man? How did I, what did I see? What's, what's uh, particular about my experience with them versus someone else's? And the thing is, is that uh, uh, I just write stories, and then when I've written enough of them, I have enough for a book. The fun part is figuring out the best way to put them together. It's like taking a deck of cards, and all of a sudden you, you put them in a certain order. And there is a rhyme or reason to the flow of the stories. But as I tell people, you can pick up my book. It's almost like an Asian book. You could read it backwards, and it'll still make sense. You, you're going to bed at night. I know myself. I like to read a chapter before I go to bed. Well, I don't, James Patterson is so successful because he has page and a half chapters. I try to keep it simple. I tell my story, and you can each story is self-contained, so it's not such, not such a daunting experience. And so many women have told me that their husbands don't normally read books, but they read my books. And the first thing I say to them, they'll say, my husband doesn't read books. I said, why'd you marry him? But in any case, <laughs> I'm, I feel good that they, that they read my books, if they're going to read a book. When you were talking to me about the Baseball Hall of Fame, for instance, uh, I would vote for Pete Rose. But Pete Rose is not eligible. See, he's not on the ballot. People don't understand that. He's not on the ballot. He should be. He wasn't smart. He's like Nixon. He didn't realize that if you just say in America, if you say you're sorry, and you're going to change, you shouldn't have done it, people forgive you, and he'd be in the Hall of Fame. Well, with this book, um, you, with the six quarterbacks, you always hear people talk about, oh, the, all the Hall of Fame quarterbacks from Western Pennsylvania, it must be something in the water. Was there some thread that you found, some consistency, something you can point to that have all these 
six quarterbacks have in common that led them to be what they I've heard are. the line about it. It's in the water, or maybe it was the Iron City beer, or as Joe Montana said, maybe our parents all were drinking Iron City beer the night we were conceived. But uh, I found out that maybe it was in the water, but it might have been holy water. Holy water. I never read this anywhere. I never saw it mentioned in anything that I read or anybody telling me this. But after I had done six, it dawned on me that they were all Catholics. They were all raised in the Catholic tradition, which I sent a, this, a note to Bishop Zubik in Pittsburgh about that. And my book has a imprimatur, so to speak, from Bishop Zubik. He said, this book has my blessing. <laughs> well, the, the nuns back in grade school would be really surprised that Jimmy O'Brien has an endorsement from the Bishop of Pittsburgh. But I take great pride in that. Um, and when I think about it, some of the other great quarterbacks who are not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Johnny Lujak of Connellsville and Notre Dame, Heisman Trophy winner not in, in, the Hall of Fame. in 1947. <laughs> and he's in the College Football Hall of Fame. Arnold Galiffa from Denora, lettered in 11, 11 letters at Army, was drafted by both the New York Giants and the New York Yankees. Arnold Galiffa of Denora, played with De Deacon Dan Tyler and played with uh, some great teams at, uh, at Denora High School. He's Catholic. Uh, Mark Bulger, who played for the St. Louis Rams, he follows Danny Marino at Central Catholic High School. Terry Hanratty of Butler High School and Notre Dame. Uh, Tommy Clements of Notre Dame, who precedes, comes after Hanratty, precedes uh, um, Montana. He's a Catholic. So maybe it's in the holy water. I don't, I, I don't know. But here's the thing. It's a real anomaly when you think about it. The modern era quarterbacks that are in the Hall of Fame, that means since World War II, for instance, like Sid Luckman it precedes that period. Sammy Baugh is before that period. But since World War II, there have been 23 quarterbacks in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And of 23, six are from within a 60-mile radius of Pittsburgh. That's really something strange and quite an accomplishment. There are no quarterbacks in the Pro Football Hall of Fame from central Pennsylvania or from eastern Pennsylvania. Go figure. Well, just for the record, we should name them. You have Johnny Unitas, George Blanda, Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Joe Namath, and Jim Kelly. Were they all standouts in high school, or were there some who were so-so in high school and kind of late bloomers? No, they could all play all sports, all sports. They all played, you know, they played, and so did Lou Jack and the other fellows that I mentioned. They, I just, I mentioned how Arnold Galiffa won 11 letters at Army. They could play everything. And what's interesting is why football? Because I think one of the things that's happening today because of the concern about concussions and concussion-like syndrome and so forth, parents are choosing more and more not to allow their children to play football. So that's happening. And, uh, you know, a kid like Tiger Woods comes along. All of a sudden, some young African-Americans might say, hey, I'm going to be a golfer. I'm going to be a big-time golfer. And, of course, there's been a decline in the number of blacks in baseball, in Major League Baseball. And, in fact, there was just a uh, – Dusty Baker became the manager 
of the Washington Nationals during this offseason, and he's now the only black manager in baseball. So things change through the years as far as what they choose to uh, specialize in. But they can all, those guys can play, they can pick up a golf club or tennis and they can play. Well, you say in the book here that Joe Montana was offered a basketball scholarship at North Carolina State. North Carolina State. He was supposed to be a real terrific point guard and everything else. I tell all these guys, most, I go to these events now and these dinners and everybody's hobbling to get up the steps on the stage and I can bounce up there and I say, you know, there is something to be said for not having been a good athlete. My knees are signed, my ankles are signed, nothing hurts except my ego when I play sports. But all these guys are all walking around like they're mascots for the Pittsburgh Penguins. So there are some benefits. Were you able to talk to any of their high school coaches? Any of the high school yes. coaches still around? Yes. And uh, it's, for instance, Jim Kelly, he takes his high school coach from East Brady, Terry Henry. He takes him everywhere, takes him on vacations, takes him to the Super Bowl every year, takes all his brothers to the Super Bowl. He's, these men can afford to be generous, but there are a lot of people who can afford to be generous who aren't generous. And they, they, I went to a, I went to a uh, fundraising dinner this year, at which Joe Namath comes back at least once a year to his hometown of Beaver Falls, and he helps them raise money for some local charities. And for his high school coach Larry Bruno, when he was ill, he has since died, but he helped in that regard. He helps with the Larry Bruno Foundation. He helps with a local sports museum and so forth. And he was at this uh, program this one night. I went there, and there were. Oh, there were about 300 people in the room at a hotel. And Joe was there for three hours. And in three hours, Joe never stopped smiling for three hours. And Joe touched, touched everyone in that room, hugged a few people, posed for photos. His time was their time. And I was very impressed with that. And there was a judge there named uh, Mancini, Judge Mancini. And they were giving this one young woman who's going to Robert Morris an award and she said she was going to major in biomedical engineering. And the judge said to Joe Namath, isn't that what you majored in, Joe, at Alabama? And Joe is so quick. Joe said, no, no. He said, uh, I started that program. <laughs> and then I was reminded from having read about Joe Namath, one time the sports writers were giving him a hard time about his so-called education at Alabama. And they were saying that he majored in basket weaving. And he said, no, I didn't. He said, basket weaving was too tough. So I would switch to journalism. <laughs> so he nailed them. He got back at them. Did you They're see, quick on their feet. You ever see Johnny Unitas play? I saw him play, and I interviewed him once. He was my boyhood hero. I used to wear black high-top shoes like he did. I wore number 19, as he did. He was from Pittsburgh. Uh, I had got crew-cut hair in those days. It was darker than it is now. I learned how to throw a football by keeping it right by your ear, keeping it not out here, not up there, not up here, right by your ear, and throwing and, uh, with a downward motion as if you're throwing a curveball in baseball. I did all that. If I hadn't been so small, so nearsighted, and perhaps weak-armed, although I can still throw a football pretty good. I could have been another Johnny Unitas. But you know the thing is, and I just heard this, I just was reading one of Myron Cope's books. 
he's a, one of my mentors as a young writer, and he was a great writer here in Pittsburgh, and he was the, the analyst for the Pittsburgh Steelers and so forth. And he, in his book, Double Yoy, he says that most sports writers are all people who wanted to be major league athletes of some kind. I never did. I never did. I don't know whether it was an early awareness that I just was fair in Little League. I played all the sports, played football, played basketball. Uh, still, up until two years ago, I was still playing weekend basketball. Now I play a game called pickleball. And pickleball is becoming a sensation among not only seniors, but also high school kids. It's played on a court about half the size of a tennis court. It's played with paddles and it's played with a wiffle ball, and you don't have to run quite as much. But I still like to play. But I, I wanted as a kid to be a writer. I was the, uh, I organized all the games in my neighborhood. I set up things. I was the one to shovel the snow so we could play basketball. I was the one to fix the fields, raked grass and stuff like that. I had everything ready. And then I start writing stories about what we were doing and slid them under the door of the local newspaper and they start printing the paragraph, two paragraphs, three paragraphs. And then they called me one day and offered me the job as a sports editor. I was 14. So I became the sports editor. And then when I went to the University of Pittsburgh, I was 18, and I, had a, I found out Myron Cope and I had something in common. We both went to Pitt on senatorial scholarships. And when I was a sophomore, I became the first non-senior to be the sports editor of the Pitt News. And uh, I won some national writing contests, and that's when I knew that I was pretty good at doing this. And, but uh, Pitt News had some, you know, had some good sports writers. Bob Smizek was there from the, he's now with the, retired from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, but still blogs. Bob was very good, and uh, Myron Cope, and we had a lot of writers. But see, the thing is, I still stay connected. Like, one of the people I'm going to be seeing very soon is uh, B Billy Kahn's wife. Billy Kahn was the great light heavyweight fighter who fought for the heavyweight title against Joe Lewis. He should have won and, and got carried away with himself and got knocked out in the 13th round. You know how big that was? They were fighting at the polo grinds in New York and in Pittsburgh. They stopped a Pirates game at Forbes Field and put the fight that was on the radio over the PA system for its entire 13 rounds and then resumed the baseball game. Now, how about that? I mean, he was the biggest thing in Pittsburgh sports for a long, long time because Steelers were a mediocre team. The Pirates weren't doing well at that time. Billy Kahn was, was big. And when I visited Billy Kahn's wife, I mean, she's in her 80s, but she's still a vibrant woman. She's still beautiful. She's still got great stories to tell, and she's very frank and a little saucy sometimes. She got all dolled up for me. She got dressed up. I mean, she's in a senior citizen's home, and she looked like a Ziegfeld Folly or something for the, the night that I visited her. And, but I thought to myself, I'm here. You know, I went with Willie Pastrano to the Bastille. I went with John Henry Johnson of the Steelers to an all-black nightclub in Pittsburgh. I mean, I was, I'm glad I was with John Henry. I might have been nervous. But I, had, I go to these places, and I, and I get the stories. We have a lot of pictures of yourself in here with prominent football people, and you are always beaming in the pictures, like you're just having a ball. My kids say that's the Jim O'Brien smile. And they also, when they write their own papers and so forth, when they were in school and now they do some writing, they say, I had a Jim O'Brien lead, lead, and things like that. I'm probably smiling because I think of myself as a lucky guy. Got a great wife, got 
kids that have accomplished things and don't get in any trouble, you got to be lucky for that to happen. And so many people who read my books always say things like, I would like to have been along with you, or I would like, to, can I just carry your bag? They want to meet those people. And I think they do when they read my books. I, I get people telling me that they feel like they're with me. And that's my goal. That's my goal. It started out with the kids that I played with on that sports teams on my street, Sunnyside Street, in the heart of Hazelwood, in the heart of Pittsburgh. As I got older and was starting to travel to places such as Notre Dame and Seattle, Washington and Miami, Florida, somehow I wanted to take my buddies along with me. And that's how I write. I, Roy McHugh, a wonderful sports writer in Pittsburgh who's now into his 90s, he said to me once, uh, I had interviewed Henry Aaron in his home in Atlanta for a cover story for Sport Magazine. And I let Roy McHugh read it before I submitted it because he used to do that with, for Myron Cope. And he said to me, show me that you were there. Show me that you were there. Put yourself in front of Henry Aaron in his home. So even though I'm not a playwright and I've never attempted to write a play, I always do set a scene early in the story. And the other thing that I tell my writing class is don't necessarily start at the beginning. Jump in. Tell a story that's going to get people's immediate interest that they want to know well, why, what's going on here, so they stay with the story. And uh, I'd like to write to be understood. I've been accused by one editor of writing beneath my ability, which I think is nonsense. Uh, when I was 15 or 16, I read a book called 30 Days to a More Powerful Vocabulary. And I was insufferable for the next year reading my stories because I was throwing out words such as ubiquitous and omnipresent and uh, coup d'etat. And they were wondering, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? So, and I will fix, if I'm interviewing somebody and they use the wrong word, I put the right word. Again, it's not the Gettysburg Address. I'm not out to poke fun at them. I want to ask you about just a couple of things while we have time uh, in, in your book. One is um, Johnny Unitas, getting back to Johnny Unitas, you have a program for a football game, November 18, 1955, Arnold A.C. versus the Bloomfield Rams, with Johnny Unitas as the starting quarterback. And you say in the book he was paid, I think, $7 a game? $7 a game. For that? That was after he was with the Steelers? That was after he tried out for the Steelers. I think he was a ninth-round draft pick in the mid-50s. That's why I don't believe the story that Pudge Huffelfinger was the first pro football player and then he got $500 to play for a Pittsburgh team before that. Because they were paying guys $100. And why would somebody pay a guard, even if he was an All-American guard at Yale? Why would you pay a guard $500? I just think he was getting the check for the team or something like that. So that's a story that I would dispute. But Johnny Unitas, I told you he was my hero. I have been on football fields in Pittsburgh where he played. I was sent into a game once as the backup quarterback, and I was told to fall on the ball three times just to protect the lead and everything. I said, you know, Johnny and I just didn't fall on the ball three times, so at least I plowed ahead for a yard or a half yard. Of course, I risked fumbling the ball, but I didn't, and I just wanted to feel what Johnny and I just felt. One night, my wife and I were coming away from Heinz uh, Field in Pittsburgh, and we were walking along a street in the north side where rich people used to live once upon a time. 
and you could see the ballpark, and you could see the fireworks going on, and we, and we were looking through this one alleyway, and I told my wife about this ball field that was up in the back called Monument Hill. And I said, I played on that field. And my wife said, oh, please. She said, you've played on more fields in Pittsburgh than Johnny Unitas. <laughs> so I was just trying to impress her. I've been married to her for 48 years, and Kathy's a tough to, tough to uh, impress. You do say here that um, Latrobe stakes a claim as uh, being the first, the birthplace of professional football. There's a plaque near the entrance of a stadium there that reads on September 30th, 1895, John Brallier, quarterback, was paid $10 and expenses for leading the Latrobe YMCA to a 6-0 win over Jeanette Athletic Association. This payment is recognized by the National Football League as the beginning of the professional gridiron sport. Right, it was at one time, and I think he was also paid some cakes, some cakes. Uh, I've met his uh, grandson, and I've met members of his family when I'm up at Fort Ligonier Days, which is neighboring community to Latrobe. And of course, Latrobe claims Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, and uh, the neighborhood, Arnold Palmer, and of course, Dr. John K. Brawyer. He was a dentist, and he played quarterback on that team. I wish that had stood up, and, and Latrobe had made a bid early on to get the Hall of Fame there. And what's really interesting about that is that uh, the company that was the major contributor to getting Canton was, a fellow, was the Timken Steel Company. And the Timken Steel Company is now headquartered in Latrobe, but they're looking to move possibly to Pittsburgh. But the company that put up the big money to get it in Canton, but I think Canton makes a bigger deal about having it than Pittsburgh would or Latrobe. So I, I'm, I have no problem with it being in Canton. And, it was, they, they trace it to George Howis, who owned and, and coached one of the early teams in the National Football League. He had a meeting at an automobile agency in Canton, Ohio, and with some other prospective owners and so forth. And that's when they formed what is now the National Football League. Now, we haven't yet mentioned George Blanda. I know. You're going to get back and you say, I mean, I don't know why I did talk about all whatever, those notes you know, whatever and everything. You want. <laughs> why we did all these notes and everything else. That Jim O'Brien's impossible. George Blanda played longer than any other player in pro football, 26 years. And uh, he was cantankerous. I mean, he played in the American Football League. When he came out of school in 1949 from the University of Kentucky, where he had played for Bear Bryant, he... I don't know why they drafted him. The Chicago Bears drafted him, and they already had Sid Lockman from Columbia. They had Johnny Lujak from Notre Dame, and they had Bobby Lane from Texas. And those guys are all in some Hall of Fame, not necessarily the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but Lockman and Lane are, are both, and now Blanda, and Johnny Lujak is in the College Football Hall of Fame. But uh, Blanda, of course, became the great kicker for the Oakland Raiders uh, when Al Davis owned the team. And, he was a feisty guy, and he was fun to interview. And I met his family. I met his mother. His mother was in her 80s, and she was pushing a mower, a non-motorized mower in her grass. And she asked me to have a drink, and I said I didn't drink. And she said, what kind of man doesn't have a drink? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but she was, from, uh, she was uh, from Yugoslavia. Her husband was from Yugoslavia. And when you shook hands with Mrs. Blanda, Mary was her name, Mary. You knew why George was such a tough guy, why he lasted for 26 years. 
And I was lucky. I was at, not only in his home a few times. I was in Danny Marino's home. at dinner there. Somebody was critiquing my book, said any book that has a picture of Jane Russell in it and a recipe for a chocolate pudding <laughs> dessert by Ma, uh, Veronica, Veronica Marino is a good book. So that, that, How that's, did Jane Russell get in the book? Jane Russell got in the book because a writer named George Casita, who once wrote for the Philadelphia Daily News but was from Pittsburgh, he had a theory that when you write a column and you mention a movie star, you put the movie star's picture in your column, it'll attract readership. So Jane Russell was married to a quarterback. She was married to Bob Waterfield of the Los Angeles Rams. He was the co-quarterback of that team. They had another great quarterback, also in the Hall of Fame, named Norman Van Brocklin, better known for leading the Philadelphia Eagles to the NFL championship in 1960 with uh, Tommy McDonald and Van Buren Chuck and uh, Chuck Benerick, the last 60-minute man in pro football. So got to get Philadelphia in here so that <laughs> can cover both ends of the state. Um, I just saw a guy the other day in a Panera's restaurant. I walked up to him and I said, uh, you probably don't know this person. I said, but you're a dead ringer for, for uh, Norm Van Brocklin. And he said, I'm old enough to know Norm Van Brocklin, the Dutchman. Well, one of the things I noticed about these six quarterbacks is three of them, well, George Blanda and, um, and uh, who was the other one? Oh, oh, Joe Namath played in the AFL before the merger. Right. The AFL was a fledgling little league. And Jim Kelly played in the USFL for yes. a couple of years. Yes. Well, when Jim Kelly came out of my – first of all, he went to Miami because Penn State, Joe Paterno, planned on having him play linebacker. He did that a lot with quarterbacks, made them into linebackers, and with great success. Well, Kelly wanted nothing to do with that, nor did he want anything to do with the Pennsylvania winters. Having grown up in East Brady on Brady's Bend, he knew he was quite familiar with that. So he didn't want to go to Buffalo. So he goes to Houston instead and plays for the Houston Gamblers in the United States Football League for two years and had great numbers and everything else. Then that league folds and he has to go, and he still got the best contract at the time from the Buffalo Bills, and it was a better contract than Joe Namath got, which was so celebrated at the time because he was called the $400,000 quarterback. There was a book called The $400,000 Quarterback by a writer named Bob Curran, C-U-R-R-A-N. I remember that. And uh, so he, he, he got the money, and he goes to Buffalo, and now he lives there year-round. I mean, he's, he's very tight with the new ownership. He's, he's an ambassador for Buffalo. He's uh, loved here in Pittsburgh, too. And, and he's a guy who does a lot of good for the people he grew up with in his hometown. You know, he, he doesn't talk about it, but they do. And that was the fun part of the book, talking to people that went to school with Joe Namath at Beaver Falls, talking to people that went with Jim Kelly, and they were talking about all their teenage shenanigans and so forth. It's like American graffiti all over again. And it gives you an understanding of, you know, Joe Namath, when he was here, he said, I knew growing up in Beaver Falls that someday I would end up in one kind of a uniform or another. So they, they, were, they could be bad. Why did Joe Namath sign with the AFL in the first place when the NFL was the league? Money. Money. It was the, it was the top money at the time. You know, it's, it's, uh, rookies make more than that now in the National Football League, sad to say. But that's why. And, and, and I'm sure New York had a great appeal. And Sonny Werblin, who was a showman, made his money in show business, I'm sure that appealed to Namath. I've got to tell you one quick Joe Namath story. He's getting recruited to come and play at Miami. 
and the coach is Gus Gustafson, Andy Gustafson, who was a pit guy. And a lot of pit people down in Miami in the early days of the program. So he's being recruited with a teammate from Beaver Falls. And the guy who was the quarterback before Namath at Beaver Falls, a guy named Rich Nabala, who became a really successful high school coach in Western Pennsylvania at Western Beaver. He's, down, he's the quarterback on the team down at Miami, and Andy Gustafson asked him to host Joe Namath when he's visiting, take him around the campus, show him around. So Namath comes down, and this guy, Nabal, is nervous because he knows Joe Namath, and he has no idea what he's going to do, but he could, has the potential to do something wrong. So Namath shows up, and he's got a goatee. He's a high school student. He's got a goatee, which was rarer in those days than it is now. So Nabal says, hey, Joe, please don't do anything to get me in trouble. He said, because i got to live with this guy. He says, he said, I said he's not going to like this goatee. He said, we're not allowed to have facial hair on the Miami team. It's banned. Joe says, don't worry, i got it covered. So Nabal takes him to the office of Gustafson. Gustafson comes out, takes Joe Namath into the office, leaves Nabal on the bench to wait for him. So he goes in, and they're in there for about a half hour, and he comes out, and uh, Namath goes off by himself, and now he calls Nabala in the office. The coach says to Nabala, he says, boy, that, that Joe Namath, he's something, isn't he? And Nabala says, yeah, he is. He says, boy, he's something. He said, you know, with all he's got going at Beaver Falls High School, whether football, the baseball, basketball, he still finds time. He's going to play the part of Joseph in the Christmas story that they're doing at the high school. And Nabala said he... He didn't laugh because he didn't want to upset the coach. He said, but he walks out, he says, Joe had everything covered. <laughs> Told him he was going to be Joseph. <laughs> I want to ask you about something. This book comes with a flyer called Selfie Interest, and you write about the challenges of selling self-published books now and that, that it's changed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's not necessarily just self-published books because, and all these other people that you interview probably have had experiences like this. So many bookstores have closed. The chains. Walden Books, out of business. Borders, out of business. B. Dalton, out of business. They all went out of business with my books and other people's books in their store, protected by bankruptcy laws, never paid for the books. Take a hit on that. I don't deal with bookstores anymore, except a few independent stores where I know I'm going to get paid. And I just give them a few books, and they pay me when they get the books, not later. I have found that today, and I'm not a real technology-savvy guy, but today people find you. I have been doing books for nearly 30 years. I have a following. They find you on the Internet, and I, my books are on Amazon.com. But more people are buying books directly from me. Barnes & Noble has been after me the last couple of years to give them books, and I won't, give, I won't do it. I don't need them anymore. And I always used to say that the worst place to try to sell a book is in a bookstore. First of all, you're competing with thousands and thousands of books and magazines. I do signings in downtown office buildings in Pittsburgh. I do signings that if you call me and you want to have me to come to your house and buy 20 books, I'll do it. I just have had orders from California, from um, Florida, from New Jersey, books like 15 to 25 to 30 books because people use them for Christmas gifts and I sign them and I sometimes even call some of my readers I, if, if I'm not busy and I see some phone numbers on my computer I will call them 
and they say, geez, I'm surprised to hear from you. And I say, well, you're not going to hear from John Grisham. Stephen King's not calling you today. You better be happy with Jim O'Brien. And then they might want to ask you about the Steelers or the Pirates or what have you. Doing it right, whatever it takes, keep the faith, dare to dream. I do whatever I need to do to develop that kind of relationship because like authors are important to me. I go to hear authors speak. I watch your show on PCN. I want to hear what other authors are saying, what they're doing. And I think I've found a new way to do business. And I, there's no distributor. It's just directly with, with the person. And if they send me an order and they have it, sign it to Joe, I'll send them an email. Joe who? Is this for Christmas, birthday? Who's Joe? I just find out by doing that that Joe was a fellow, her brother, who is a part owner of the Houston Texans, is from the Pittsburgh area and loves my books and wants to meet me. So when I, well, next time he's in town, hell, I'll go out with a millionaire that owns the part of the uh, Houston Texans. Is your basement piled high with boxes of your 28 You've been talking so to books? my wife, haven't you? <laughs> we actually, I had to get rid of 10 books last night for the local library. I had to get rid of 10 books. Not mine. But I'll tell you what my wife said. No, I, there are a lot of books, but I try to keep them in, in nice stacks. A guy came to me and he said that his dad had died the week before and his dad was the last groundskeeper at Three River Stadium, Barry Gordon, and I had written a chapter about him in a book about Art Rooney called The Chief. And the guy stops his car and I was out doing some work in the yard, which I don't do too often, fortunately. I promised my wife I would do it probably three years earlier. I thought I was thatching the lawn, but what I was doing was dethatching the lawn. Whichever I was doing, it's not easy. It's a lot of work. <clears throat> this guy stops and says, you remember my dad? I said, yeah. He said, my dad died last week. I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He said, I just wanted you to know, my dad loved that chapter you wrote about him, and he was so proud of it, he carried the book with him everywhere. And he said, we buried my dad the other day, and he said, your book is in my dad's casket. At that moment, my wife, Kathy, came to the door, and she said, what's going on down there? You know, she, she knew, she just felt that I had paused in my work effort and now she's at the door to see what's going on. And, and I'm always trying to impress her. We've been married 48 years and I'm still trying to impress her. I said, honey, this man just told me that his dad, and I love my book, they buried his dad, and my book's in the casket. I said, that's at least the sixth casket I know of that one of my books has been in. Kathy said, I'll tell you someone else whose casket your books are gonna be in. Yours, when you go, all those books in the garage, <laughs> <laughs> are going with you. So she keeps me humble. We have been talking with Jim O'Brien. He is the author of 28 books? 24, 24. but I'm going to write four more. <laughs> I want to break my personal record for being on this show. The newest one is this one, Golden Arms, six Hall of Fame quarterbacks from Western Pennsylvania. Jim O'Brien, thanks a lot. Brian, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.